So the following story was published by a guy named Peter Kennedy. It was found in the Christian catacombs of Rome. And the following story is, of course, told in modern English, because if I spoke it in Latin, then you would get it. So this is a story, again, found in the Christian catacombs in Rome. A rich man named Proculus had hundreds of slaves. The slave named Paulus was so trustworthy that Proculus made him the steward over his whole household. One day, Proculus took Paulus with him to the slave market to buy some new workers. And before the bargaining began, they examined the men to see if they were strong and healthy. Among the slaves stood a weak old man. Paulus urged his owner to buy the slave. Proculus answered, but he's good for nothing. Go ahead and buy him, Paulus insisted. He is cheap, and I promise that the work in your household will get done even better than before. So Proculus agreed and purchased the elderly slave, and Paulus made good on his word. The work went better than ever. But Proculus observed that Paulus now worked for two men. The old slave did no work at all, while Paulus tended to him, gave him the best food, and made him rest. Proculus was, of course, curious, so he confronted Paulus. Who is the slave? You know I, I value you. I don't mind you protecting this old man. But tell me who he is. Is he your father who's fallen into slavery? Paulus answered, it is someone to whom I owe more than to my father. Your teacher then? No, somebody to whom I owe even more. Who then? This is my enemy. Your enemy? Yes. He is a man who killed my father and sold us and the children, uh, us the children as slaves. Proculus stood speechless. As for me, said Paulus, I am a disciple of Christ who has taught us to love our enemies and to reward evil with good. And that is what we will talk about today. So if you could turn to Luke 6, 27 through 36. Again, that's Luke 6, 27 through 36. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one sitting around you. Um, raise your hand and I can toss it to you. If you've never been to the Gospel of Luke, it's the third book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke. comes right before Juan. Okay. Um, and Luke's uh, sequel is Acts, which is after Juan. What was the chapter? Uh, chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. We covered uh, the few verses prior last week. Um, that talk and this talk will probably be up tomorrow or the day after on iTunes. So let me read this for you. Luke 6, 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To, the, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not uphold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is a kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Let me pray. Father God, as we dive into today's story, as we dive into uh, the second part of Jesus' first sermon, 
Um, Lord, may we be confronted by evil that is around us, by the evil we might impose on others. Um, and may we uh, deal with it, Lord. Uh, may this convict us and uh, point us towards you. In your son's name, amen. Ugh. Enemies. Many of, many of you remember the story of Jonah from earlier this fall. Jonah had enemies, namely those in Nineveh. But Jonah was called to go to those people and to call them to repentance and the forgiveness of God. But he didn't like that idea at all. And he had the right to hate them. These were some of the worst people that Jonah was encountering. Sacrificing their children, slaughtering their enemies, torturing those that viewed, they viewed as enemies, even torturing for fun. These people were wicked. Jonah was called to them to call them to repentance and possibly potential forgiveness by God. Jesus asked us to go a step further than just call our enemies to repentance. He calls us to love our enemies. But let's break down the two most important words in that phrase, love and enemies. Enemies here is not what you think of when you think of a military conflict. It is not the Ninevites or the Nazis. Enemies in this instance are those who oppose you. I want you to understand that. It is those who oppose you. Ever had a conflict at school with a classmate? Or a conflict at home with a sibling? A teacher who didn't work with you, but you actually felt worked against you? A boss or coach who, well, was more of a demanding dictator than a builder of people? A moment with a parent as you try to spread your wings, but you feel like they're killing your opportunities? The oblivious driver in the left-hand lane that suddenly needs to make a right turn about 50 feet from a four-lane intersection. Sorry, I had to throw that one in there. It's a rough week on the road. That person at work that is all about themselves, not about the team, or more importantly, about you. Any of those at home? So let me give you a working definition of enemies here. It's your first fill-in-the-blank. An enemy is a hurdle to your satisfaction. An enemy here is a hurdle to your satisfaction. Whether your satisfaction is Christ's kingdom or your kingdom, either way, it's the hurdle. It's the hurdle. It's the runner who runs the race, and I think that makes sense considering the Pauline analogy that we get throughout Scripture. And it's the hurdle in your path. And then there's the word love. I mean, we talk about enemies, well, that's the hurdle. Then we got to deal with love. Well, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. We throw this word around a lot in our culture. And most of the time it can mean very different things. I love donuts is a very different than the loves and the I do's of a wedding ceremony. At least they should be. <laughs> saying I love you to a friend is different than saying I love you to a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I love my dog is different than I love my God, even though dog and God use the same letters. So let me give you some different types of love from the Greek language. These are the ones used in the New Testament, and they're in no particular order. But there are several words for love in the Greek. There's six or seven in the New Testament they use four. Um, well, the, really the Septuagint as a whole. So even the Greek Old Testament, they use some of these words too. So the first version of love in the Old Testament is phileo. Everyone say phileo? phileo. Boys, if you want to write these down, it works really well when you talk to women later in life. Yeah. Phileo. 
This is a love of your companion, your friend. For most of you in here, the love I have for you is a phileo love. It's your teammate, your co-pilot, your wingman or wingwoman, you call it for coffee or gay night. If you are the subject and your friend is the object, it is a love that is born out of your admiration for the object. The qualities in the other bring out this sort of love, but it is mutual, mutual admiration. That's phileo or friendship type love. Next is eros. Eros is where we get the term erotic. It's a romantic love. Although eros is directed towards another, it has the self completely in mind. Again, if you are the subject and your friend is the object, you love them because they make you happy. These should be, this sh that should be present in relationships, but how many bad relationships have we seen on TV and real life where that is the basis of the relationship? I am dating you because you make you me happy. It's all about me and how you make me feel. It's called a leech. Right? We see this all the time played out in cinema and television and unfortunately real life. Instead of it being built on phileo or good relationships, um, which is an admiration of another person's qualities, now it is just on how the other person makes you feel. The third type of love is storge or storge. I've heard it heard said different ways. This is one found in nature. By that I mean it is one that's typically born out of a natural relationship. My love for my son or daughter is storge or storge. It is also for my wife. It is just a natural, quiet feeling one has for their relationships. You can't really explain it. It's just present. It's just there. The fourth one is agape. This one's thrown around in church a lot. I know some churches that are even named this agape church. I love the definitions, pun intended, used from Precept International Ministries. So I'm stealing their definition of what agape love is. Agape is called out of one's heart by the preciousness of of the object's love. It's a love of esteem, of evaluation. It's the idea of prizing. I think that's the best way to view it. It's the subject prizing the object of its admiration. It's the noblest word for love in the Greek language. Agape is not kindled by the merit or worth of the object. You don't love the subject of your affection because they have done something or because they are noble. But it originates in its own God-given nature. It's just there. God is love. It delights in giving. This love keeps on loving, even when the loved one is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, and unworthy. It is an unconditional type of love. Agape desires only the good of the one loved. It is the consuming, pa consuming passion for the well-being of others. Remember how we talked about being the subject and they being the object? This love has nothing to do with you. You gain nothing, but it is found in the object and not out of what they have done for you. That's phileo or even admiration. But because you choose in that moment to prize them. It's a beautiful sort of love. I think it's the love we all desire at the end of the day. And it's the love that if you're a Christian, that God freely bestows and gives to you and offers to those that we share the gospel with. And agape love is the love word used here when he says love our enemies. He doesn't say phileo them, like your enemies, because find some good quality in them. Okay? 
or love them because, well, they're kind of like your brothers. Love them. Simply prize them for who they are. This is your next number blank. You are to love the hurdle in your path. You are to love the hurdle in your path. And if you are living a life for God, for his kingdom, to expand the analogy of enemies and love, this is the next fill in the blank. You love the hurdle in your path because the king has put it there for a reason. You love the hurdle in your path because the king has put it there for a reason. You ever thought about that? That's one of the sovereignty things that God played out. If God is sovereign and he's planned out every moment of existence, he knows what's going to happen, then he has put that hurdle that distraction, that enemy in your path for a couple of reasons. We'll get to those later. So how do we love our enemies, AJ? How do we do it? Is it just enough? Can I just smile at them? Like they walk into the room and you're like, that smile Mia gives you when she's just trying to appease. Okay? That one. Thank you. Do you just smile at them? Do you like just take their picture off the dartboard at home? Like, is that enough? Do I just stop throwing darts at you? I mean, what does it look like? Luckily, Jesus gives us three things he wants us to do for our enemies. And he provides an outline for tonight's action points. See, Jesus was a Presbyterian. He gave us three things. Maybe not. Okay? First one. Do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Point two. Bless those who curse you. These are the underlined things that say one, two, and three in your outline if you want to follow along. Bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. And the third one, if you were paying attention to the verse, is pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who abuse you. In other translations, it's persecute you. Uh, but I do like their choice of using abuse here because I do think it makes it much more personal. Especially in our culture where we're not very much persecuted, but there's a lot of abuse that happens. You heard it in the story earlier about the Roman slave, so let's cover the first section. Do good to those who hate you. You heard it earlier about the Roman slave buying and serving the man who ruined his life. This is a profound act. Fact is, to do good to those who hate you, I think is seen as a noble thing, even in most cultures, even to those who do not profess Christ. Many of you know the story of Nelson Mandela. While he was not a Christian, he too laid down his right to punish those who had unjustly punished him in order to build a solid country based on the principles of forgiveness and unity. Doing good to those who hate you does several things. Here's, here's what it does to the other person, okay, or to you. Here's what doing good to others does. One, it will possibly shame the other person. It will possibly shame the other person. Bless you. While bad shame can lead one to become more bitter, sometimes shame can lead to repentance. Sometimes shame can lead to repentance. Realizing that you, they were in the wrong. That should be your hope when you do good to those who have not done good to you. I I want you to hear that. That should be your hope when you do good to those who have not done good to you. I don't want you to like do something nice for someone else who has done something wrong to you just so you hope. I hope this wrecks you in the shame category. (laughs) Ha ha. Here's your moral high ground, Susie. (laughs) (laughs) We do this all the time. I mean, you listen to talk media for a second. 
I mean, the number of moral, moral high grounds everyone tries to take, it's like the highway system out here in Dallas. I mean, they just keep going over top of each other trying to interchange. Okay? Our goal in potentially shaming someone by being nice to them is not to bring about shame that leads to bitterness, but hopefully shame that leads to repentance. And that should be your hope when you involve yourself in those activities. I say that, and I make a big deal out of it, because I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen, us do things the opposite, just for kicks and giggles. I mean, I think the best example, you have a brother or sister, you do something nice to them after you've done something mean to them, just to get on your parents' good side. I'm going to do something. See? I wish you were more like your brother or your sister. Right? Why do we do that? Two, this is what I'll potentially do. You will be amazed at how many feuds, fights, rivalries, grudges will be put to rest by action towards the well-being of another. Being a peacemaker involves the, the exact same thing. It's a small analogy, but I've seen this take place on the soccer field numerous times. You're going at it hard with an opposing team individual, and then suddenly someone knocks someone else over. And instead of being the big guy and being like, Oh, in your face! You extend the hand to help them out. And it's amazing how many times that'll settle things on the field. Three, it has the possibility to free other parties. I think we forget this about this a lot. Typically in feuds or fights, there are no more than two people present. Are there not? There's always the friend, the wingman, who is either engaging in this stuff too, or is viewing this at the lunchroom table or in the car with the other brothers and sisters around. There is always other people. And it's not just the person that you are being good to that's a hurdle in your path that you're potentially freeing. It's everyone else that's participating and listening to the conversation or the grudge. Because as you model this in life, that act of kindness not only has the chance to change the heart of the hurdle in your path, but everyone else who is watching. As they say, oh, that was done well. That was done well. Notice how they, they handled that problem or the situation. They, they brought peace to that situation. It typically, and many times, softens the heart of those watching and points them to the one who does the change hearts. Who does change hearts. For, and this is, I think, an important one, and that it is, it is for your sanctification. It forces you to confront your own sin. Rarely do our actions not play a role in someone else's hatred or ill will towards us. Rarely. Most of the time when people dislike us, it's because we've done something bad to them in the past. They remember it. And they so so they retaliate. Many times, it's our own inaction or action that has led to the problem. Doing good for others humbles you and forces you to evaluate your worth to the king. Point two, bless those who curse you. There's that word again. We talked about it a lot last week, bless. (laughs) To not just make one happy, but to overflow their cup so much that it overflows into others' cups. It's empowering somebody with your words, not fixing somebody with your words. Does that make sense? It's not just saying something nice so that maybe their lives can be fixed. It's saying something nice and empowering them with your words so that they can then turn around and their cup overflows with others. And how do we do it? Well, we know from the point one that it starts with our actions. And then here, 
blessing moves towards our words. We bless others by what we say to them. Blessing in the Bible, I can't think of enough time that it doesn't, is always accompanied by speech. You have to open your mouth. There's are tons of Proverbs that speak to this idea of speak to speech. 25.15, Proverbs 25.15. With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Proverbs 12.18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. 20.15. There is gold and abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. The lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. Our words have much power in the lives of others when used well. The right question, the right answer, an unexpected response to evil, how those typically pierce the hearts of those who would hear. So, if you do good and you speak well, then what else? Pray for those who abuse you. First, this is for the other person. If you truly believe in the power of prayer, your prayers for the good of your enemy will potentially bring good to your enemy, which may even mean their salvation. Pray for that. Pray for their repentance. Pray that God would have mercy on them. Again, I'm making that a big deal. Many times, I, I, I very much remember times where, find out, I'll pray for them. Do good in their lives. Yada, yada, yada. You know, be God. I just, I see myself a Joan in there. You're like, okay, fine. I'll go talk to the Ninevites. I don't want anything to happen, but I know what might happen because you're God. Okay? But first, it is for them, and it'll change your heart towards them, especially if there is much bitterness. Second, this is for you. This prayer for your enemies is not just for the person that you're praying for. It's for you. Bitterness is one of the most dangerous Emotions that will grip your soul. I've seen it ruin families. I've seen it ruin churches. I've seen any group of people, office, teams, bitterness will wreck a group of people. Bitter people do not bless by their actions or words. I think this one is the hardest because we simply don't want to deal with our enemies. But that very choice to be inactive in our bitterness lets us know that our bitterness towards our enemies is already dealing with us. Does that make sense? So when you are inactive, I'm just not, I'm not going to do a thing. I'm going to ignore them. That bitterness towards them has already affected you so much that it's controlling your inaction. I'm just not going to do it because I'm bitter. That means they are controlling your life. You're not controlling it. This prayer for them is just as much for you to release them over to God. Let me make this clear. This is your next fill in the blank. In action against bitterness is the fuel to make bitterness grow. In action against bitterness is the fuel that makes bitterness grow. To do nothing in this instance will do something to your soul. Christ continues on in this passage. 
To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. For the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs to you. And for the one who takes away your goods, do not demand it back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. We could spend another whole sermon on this topic, but let's just play these out. We know from the Gospels that when someone struck Jesus' own cheek, he confronted them, and he didn't turn his other cheek. Paul as well. There were times people begged of Jesus, and he said no to their requests. I think of the demon-healed man who was waiting along the shore, and he said, Jesus, may may I go with you? And Christ said, no. So is Jesus a hypocrite? And let's play out some of these things in modern examples of what just happened. If you are in abusive relationships... If you are in an abusive relationship, when they beat you, are you just to show them the other cheek to hit you and not seek help? Is that what Jesus is saying here? John Piper tells the story of getting a call from someone who was thinking about committing suicide, pleading for help. So what does he do? He's a good pastor. He shows up at their home, immediately takes all the drugs that he knows that they've abused in the past. So they won't overdose. And now that person is sitting in the living room, mad at the pastor for having all the drugs that he wants to use to kill himself. And is begging him to give them over to him. Well, do you give it back? Do you give them what they're longing for, what they're begging for? Absolutely not. Their life is at stake. If someone steals your car and they are found having wrecked it, do they escape punishment by the law? Or should the law fulfill its end? Is justice the best way that they should learn? We can debate all this stuff and all these what-ifs all day. But he's just talked about dealing with enemies here. And I think the main point from this section is this. And this is your final fill-in-the-blank. I think this is the main point of these sections. All those things Jesus says is where your heart should naturally go. All these things that Jesus says about your enemy is where your heart should naturally go. Our cheeks should turn so our hearts don't run to anger and bitterness. Our tunics should come off because our hearts wish to bless others more than ascertain an abundance of clothing. When someone begs, we should hear what they are saying and not just write them off because they are of some lowly status or made poor life decisions. When someone steals from you, your heart should not go to anger or bitterness or longing for things of this world. Treat others as equal. Both of you are in need of a savior. And now we get to the bad news, good news section of the talk. I'm sorry. First, I'll start with the bad. I, I just I like to start with the bad because I like to end with something good. Here's the bad news. If you are a Christian, you're commanded to do this. If you're a Christian, you're commanded to do this. And if we're honest, especially when things get really tough in life, this is hard. It's hard. We are to be defined by our sufferings. We are to be defined by our actions to others. And not just the ones we like, but the ones we dislike as well. The bad news is that this is the standard you are called to. This is the marathon run. This is the weight you lift. This is the burden you carry. 
to think others as worth more than yourself at all your expense, your enemy will not cover any of the cost. So what's the good news? Let's not dwell on the bad news for too long, AJ. I don't want to think about that until transformation groups where I'm going to force you to think about it. But I don't, what do I do? What's the, what's the good news? The good news is that this is exactly what Christ has done for us. Is it not? He did good to all those who hated him. And not just those who propped him up on a tree to die, but us in this room who willingly and purposefully chose not to follow the law and knowingly add to the pain of Christ at the cross. He did this for us. Our actions of hate towards him, he spent his whole life and death doing good towards those who hate him. No one earned it. No one deserved it. Everyone opposed it. All fight against it. And yet he did it all knowing He did it, knowing it all, going in. He wasn't shocked by it. These people don't like me. I came as a baby. It was a great story. I had three people write it down. He wasn't shocked by it. He knew it going in, that this would be the case. And even those who would follow him, even the greatest, Peter, would deny him. He agape you and me enough to do good to those who hated him. And how did he do it? By blessing. His whole life, Christ's whole life, he spent blessing. Even some of his last words on the cross were crying out to the blessings of his persecutors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as he held his hands outstretched on Calvary in blessing, as they were nailed to the cross, he willingly acted to bless his chosen people with a relationship with him and the triune God. All of his life was spent as an act of blessing. And he prayed for his abusers. He prayed for them during his life. He prayed for them at his death. And he intercedes for his people to the Father. A people who to this day abuse his commandments and his grace and mercy. Even in the midst of my sin today, my Savior stands at the right hand of God and intercedes for me on my behalf. The other cheek was turned at the cross as he chose not to command his angels to rescue him. His tunic and clothes were taken and gambled by those who beat him. And the people who mocked him by begging him to come down off the cross, he gave the chance to become children of the Most High God. He did so to others what they refused to do to him. This is the gospel of doubt. And as people of the gospel, that is how we are to live it out. With not just the ones we like, but the ones who dislike us. And maybe... We dislike too. In his recent book, How Small a Whisper, Roger Carswell relates an amazing story of a Christian family's response to tragedy. In May 1987, 39 American seamen were killed in the Persian Gulf when an Iraqi pilot hit their ship, the USS Stark, with a missile. Newspapers carried a picture of a son of one of the seamen, a shy five-year-old boy, John Kaiser. He was standing with his hand on his heart at his father's Coffin, as his father's coffin was loaded onto a plane to take him back to the USA. His mother said, I don't have to mourn or to wear black because I know my husband is in heaven. I am happy because I know he is better off. Later on, she and young John sent a letter and an Arabic New Testament to the pilot of the Iraqi plane addressed to the man who attacked the Stark dad ship in the hope that it will show that even the son and the wife do not hold any grudge 
and are at the same time praying for the one who took the life of our Father. Do good. Bless. Pray for the hurdles that God has graciously put on your path.